Defending an independent Scotland, what will it mean for Britain's soldiers, sailors and airmen? Could gamers be the key to the UK's cyber defence? Computer enthusiasts, gaming enthusiasts, but to a fairly sophisticated level. Those are the sort of people we're looking for. Progress in Mali, we hear from Britain's training mission in Bamako. And should soldiers protect cultural heritage in conflict zones? The Scottish Government has been debating the case for independence. This week it launched a 649-page blueprint for how it believes a country could operate after breaking away from the UK. To look at the implications for defence, I'm joined by Dr Phillips O'Brien from the University of Glasgow and, as usual, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Dr O'Brien, first of all, what did you make of the SNP's plans for defence? Well, they're based on a, a number of, of interesting uh, adaptations, one might say. For the, the soldiers and sailors and airmen now of, of the British Armed Services, the interesting thing is they're not obviously going to stake claim to everyone who's in Scotland. Their big thing is they're going to build up very slowly from a very small base. They're only going to start with 7,500 active service people and reach their target of 15,000 10 years from now. So I think that's one of the most interesting things. Christopher, do you think that we learnt much about the Scottish Defence Force, how it would be made up? I don't think we know exactly how it will be made up. I think we know what the ambitions are, of course. Um, but it's also where they start getting equipment from. And so they talk about, oh, we'll have a squadron of typhoons. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't just get a squadron of typhoons. You don't simply have uh, a squadron that can actually fly them, can maintain them, etc. They say, well, we'll probably have a couple of frigates. Well, they've got some patrol crafts and there's 11,000-mile coastline to defend. That doesn't make sense. I think we're looking at it too conventionally. What Scotland will have eventually, and I think will be their ambition, let's say in a decade's time, will be to have a small force which we will make a contribution to by them, perhaps a Euro defence force, a small contribution to NATO, and something which is not a territorial in as much that it's a home guard, but has a territorial ambition with one, one headquarters staff, and that's about it. But what, I, what fascinates, fascinates me in, in another way is what's the debate between, let's say, the English, as it then will be, and the, a Scottish uh, government, who owns this defence estate in Scotland? Can people simply say, like, we're declaring independence, rather like Ian Smith did in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, as it then was, and say, right, we're confiscating uh, uh, Lucas, Kinloss, etc. Oh, by the way, one, one typhoon squadron and two frigates, and if you want any other ships, if you want to sort of park your carriers anywhere, you're going to have to park them on the Clyde because you haven't got a dock yard big enough in in, in England to, to maintain them. So there is this balance yet to come. I'm sure, I'm sure, um, Dr Phillips O'Brien, I suppose this is all ifs, isn't it? But they have to set out their case and perhaps negotiate the detail later. Well, well absolutely, but I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps slightly less... I mean, everything that they're asking for presently exists in the British Armed Services, and this document is based on cooperation with the RUK if... Scottish independence occurred. I, mean, I, I don't think there would be... Because they're not asking for a great deal of equipment, I mean, they're asking for two Type 23 frigates, which 
actually within the scheme of the negotiating wouldn't be too difficult, uh, I think, to, to work out. Um, maybe the 12 typhoons, and it's a very small number of typhoons. One might say that they almost didn't need to ask for any. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're asking for, for relatively modest amounts of equipment to begin with. And as for the, the, um, the present structures in Scotland, at least according to international law, now this will all be trumped by politics, what is in your side of the border when the split occurs is yours. Now, Scotland won't want that to happen because they won't want legal um, title to Trident. So you'll have to come up with a way to negotiate through the process over what is is our UK and what is Scottish. What about the actual Scottish battalions? What do you understand would happen under their plans to them? Well, the president, I mean, it's very interesting that they obviously don't believe or they, they I think they recognise that it will be very difficult to convince many people now in the British Armed Services to move over to an independent Scotland's forces. And they've built a buffer into the white paper because of that. They say uh, they say very clearly no one will be forced into the Scottish Armed Services. So no one even in a Scottish unit now in Scotland will be forced into the armed services of an independent Scotland. They're basing it completely on voluntary switchover. And the buffer they've built into it is by saying they're only going to need seven to seven and a half thousand active servicemen to start this up. So I think that that has been their acknowledgement of the difficulty they will have in convincing British present soldiers to come. Christopher, um, voluntary switchover. Would anyone want to be in the Scottish Defence Force and what might they be doing? I bet half my family would. (laughs) (laughs) Because they've always been in things. But I tell you, it does raise an interesting point. For example, um, uh, if you you look at a lot of the the, uh, battalions as the mall is coming down to uh, now, they find it very difficult to recruit anyway. And if you take, for example, the Black Watch you'll find there are not many Scots in the Black Watch. Uh, and also the Black Watch is really in Hampshire by now. And so there is this, there is this difficulty, but it's not necessarily uh, a problem because we're thinking in terms of a decade. That's, that's, that's the first thing. I wonder also that when you actually come down to any bargaining, if, if the whole thing happens, that you can actually sort of say, well, what's, the wrong, what's wrong, for example, with, uh, I mean, the RAF basing a, a squadron in Scotland? Um, I mean, there's political problems, obviously, with that. But it may be that when you start off by saying, well, Trident's got to go in the first parliament, and now you're saying, well, as soon as possible, whether the whole thing is, becomes relaxed, because there is an economic fundamental here and that is that the defense industry which is not just the military hardware side of it um it does involve basic things in scotland like jobs um, do- dr o'brien um just briefly uh, the international relations side of things the white paper says an independent scotland would have its own voice the united nations nato the council of europe the commonwealth and others the spanish prime minister already said scotland would have to reapply to join the eu yeah, well, there's a few. There's a lot of issues going on there. I think actually the white paper, if read closely, is a real step back on Trident withdrawal happening quickly. They do not say that Trident has to be out definitely by the end of the first parliament. In fact, they use very weak words. They say it would be towards a view of having Trident out by the end of the first parliament. What the white paper really, I think, is an acknowledgement is they're going to have to react to the RUK and give the RUK enough time to get Trident out under its own wishes and desires. So they might be in Scotland far longer. And I think this is the whole document 
is actually a reflection that now they realize you know, they are going to have to ask NATO. They are going to have to ask the EU to accept them um, into their bodies, and that will leave Scotland in a very weak position to begin with. So much of the document, if you read it closely, is an olive branch to NATO and an olive branch to the EU in many ways saying, we will be a very dutiful and loyal member. Please let us in. All right, Dr. Phillips O'Brien from Glasgow University, thanks for your time today. Still to come, why British soldiers can take some credit for this week's elections in Mali. And can cultural heritage be preserved in a war zone? The six-month deal done by Iran and the five permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany has put a nuclear bomb beyond Iran's reach for now. Depending on whose side you're on, the agreement in which the country signed up to a raft of concessions in return for a partial lifting of sanctions is either a breakthrough or an historic mistake. Christopher, first of all, what has Iran actually agreed to do and what does it get for it? The basic thing is this. Uh, It will not has agreed not to enrich uranium above 5%. Now, if you want to make bombs, you've got to go an enormous way beyond that. But 5% is almost an innocent area that you can say, right, we don't do anything more than that. They've also agreed to stop work on a reactor, which is in a place called Iraq. And that's not Iraq, it's A-R-A-K. That's very important because this would be a a reactor that could actually take the whole processing thing uh, at a further stage. They've agreed also to limit the the cascades uh, that you need to actually enrich uranium. So that fundamentally is, is what they've agreed to. In return, the Americans in particular have said, okay, we will slack off on some of the restrictions and uh, we will start doing certain amounts of trade. You will be able to release, for example, more oil onto the international market. And so that's when they think they've actually got quite a good deal. But this has all got to be done through an inspection regime and that really only lasts six months. We're at the first six-monthly stage of what could be quite a good thing. Um, Can the International Committee now be certain whether Iran is trying to build a bomb or not? Um, I think we can say for certain that whatever their ambition, they had not reached, you know, even the basic stages. Secondly, what is particularly important is that they're opening up areas which they um, wouldn't have opened up before. Now, I'm just talking about Iraq, the, uh, the reactor there. On December the 8th, they're going to allow the UN inspectors to go and look at it. The UN inspectors haven't been uh, been allowed to be within 300 miles of it before. That's going to be an, uh, an advance. Not according to Israel and not according to some of the Gulf states, of course, but that is going to be an advance. No, not, not according to Israel, who has called this an historic mistake. How do you think this deal has changed global politics and alliances? Um, well, the first thing it's done is isolated... Uh, Israel. Israel has been uh, Israel was formed in 1948. It's been at war since on war footing since 1948. Since 1979, the Iranians have said they want to destroy Israel, the state of Israel, the whole Israeli people. This is a, a sort of a mentality which the Israelis have got to li- uh, live with. The Israelis, in turn, have almost dictated certainly Obama's foreign policy in that area. 
that is now off the cards. Now, you and I have talked for ages about uh, would it be possible that the Israelis, for example, would go and bomb one of these reactors? And then you get to the next stage, well, they can't do it without the Americans, and the Americans have sort of said, well, you know, perhaps we could help you do that. Um, they've supplied them, in fact, with the weapons to do it, and the British have actually said, well, we could get into the intelligence business and support that. Suddenly, that's off. And so the United Kingdom, the United States, etc., may be on the back burner, but we are not in the business of threatening the Iranians now, and that is going to cause great difficulties for the Israelis uh, and some of the other Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Senior figures have been holding talks on the struggle against cyber attack. Industry experts, military officers, spies and the police all work in their own way to combat online threats. And the theory goes that bringing that expertise together can help tackle the problem. Will Inglis reports on the joint approach to what's ranked as a top-tier threat to the UK. Britain is halfway through something of a cyber revolution. The government's five-year, £860 million cyber security strategy recognises the value of the virtual world and seeks to stop it being used against us. MP Andrew Miller chairs the Commons Science and Technology Committee. The concept of asymmetry don't just apply in terms of warfare, uh, with small groups being able to take on nation-states, but it also applies in the world of the internet as well. Small groups could do enormous damage. That makes cyber security big business. And industry leaders are joining senior civil servants, police officers and military figures at this self-styled cyber summit, where conversations on the margins are just as valuable as the presentations. It is vitally important that we keep these kinds of networks going so that people who are at the sharp end really understand what the highest standards actually are, both of security and where all the threats are, are going to come from. It's no secret that cyber represents as much of a threat as it does an opportunity. Ranked on a par with international terrorism in the threat it poses to the UK. And that's why the government's been throwing money at it through GCHQ, through the MOD and indeed others. It isn't just a state-on-state problem though. Companies are at least as likely to be targeted. And that spawned a whole new cyber security industry. The staff at Encryption describe themselves as white hats ethical hackers. They're paid to try to break into networks for government and industry alike. Tony McDowell is their boss. There is no one silver bullet to cyber security. It's a layered approach. Penetration testing is becoming an even more important part because it's got human invention. So the humans think, well, if this happens and that happens, we can do this, perhaps. So they try it. Whereas if you've got um, a piece of software which has been written, it's only as up-to-date as it's up-to-date. They also train soldiers bound for the newly set up joint cyber units. The skills needed are the same as those used by the spies and cyber criminals they're tasked with stopping. But while we've long since known how to recruit infantry, finding cyber warriors is a new challenge altogether. Stephanie Damon heads up the Cyber Security Challenge trying to get bedroom programmers to turn pro. People who are very, very good technically are not always the most articulate sort of people and for them getting into corporate life is very difficult. On the other hand, you have some very, very articulate people. It, it spans the whole range, but, but it is a problem for employers to get to grips with. Tony McDowell agrees it's tough to find the right kind of people. The problem is uh, you need to find the right personnel 
and they need to be really highly trained because the hackers are clever. And so these guys here, they, they're clever as well. Our philosophy is we tend to only take trainees on because we honestly believe there is a wealth of expertise out there. Guys and girls who are, you know, computer enthusiasts, gaming enthusiasts, but to a fairly sophisticated level. Those are the sort of people we're looking for. His firm is part of a cluster of small businesses that's grown up in the shadow of GCHQ, a part of the industry that now plays such a great role in protecting the UK. And Andrew Miller admits it's an accident of history that when information warfare went online, we were well poised. There's some real history there. The fantastic work done by Turing and the people in Bletchley. And the strength of what we see in, uh, in Cheltenham, including in the private sector, has its roots in that wartime effort. The MOD's invested heavily in protecting its networks worldwide and openly admits it's prepared to hack Britain's enemies. Defence is so keen to get the right people into the new cyber reserves, it's openly admitted it's willing to hire reformed hackers, sometime cyber criminals. Willingless reporting. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The people of Mali have gone to the polls this week in their first parliamentary election since a coup nearly two years ago and an Islamist militant takeover in the north of the country. Although the turnout was low, it's seen as a sign of major and rapid progress, with part of the credit given to a mission joined by British soldiers training Mali's own army. Having been defeated on their own ground, they asked the European Union to help rebuild their forces. James Hurst reports from the capital of Mali, Bamako. Less than a year ago, this city was feared to be just days away from being overrun by Islamist militants pushing down from the north of Mali. Now it's a busy, bustling place, the streets packed with people zipping round on scooters and pushing trolleys full of watermelons. And everywhere you look, there are election campaign posters. The progress has been incredible, actually. Britain's ambassador here, Dr Phil Boyle. Bearing in mind what happened one year ago, we had two-thirds of the country under Islamist control. Most of the north was occupied by a mixture of terrorists and Azawadi nationalists. We had a transitional government. Within a year, the north has been taken back. Most of the Islamists have been killed or driven out of the country. There are still some pockets left, but by and large they've gone. There's been presidential elections. Now, if you had told me that one year ago, that all that was going to happen, I would say you know nothing about Mali. He puts the progress in part down to the EU training mission, including British soldiers, that's helping rebuild Mali's army. Soldiers from France and some of Mali's African neighbours had to help drive the Islamists back and retake the north. Now, Britain and other European nations are trying to make this country's forces self-sufficient. At Kulukuru, about 40 miles outside Bamako, a mix of experienced Malian soldiers and new recruits are being trained up by personnel from 20 European countries, including Britain. The 10-week course teaches everything from basic weapons techniques to strategy, command and control. Britain's got 21 trainers here at the moment from 1st Battalion, the Rifles. They're training up an infantry company commanded by Lieutenant Mamadou Ouattara. For me anyway, we'll see, but it's been really useful for all the people that have been through it. They've been able to acquire a certain knowledge they'd have never have picked up anywhere else on the rest of the training system or on their bases. The men of One Rifles have been here for around three months. For some, their first deployment abroad, while others have fought and trained in Afghanistan. It's, a bit, it's very different, and it's very different to see the world. So. I enjoy being here, it uh, widens the horizon. It's been good. I've had a few hiccups along the way, but they're all keen. They've joined up to be in the army and they want to help. 
their country. And there's high praise for their work from the French commander of European trainers here in Kalukuru, Colonel Philippe Tessar. Working with the British Army is a real privilege. Um, they are really skilled and I'm very often saying that my British and Irish infantry company is the best team for infantry training and it's hard for me to say that because I'm providing one infantry company with my French regiment. This isn't an entirely new experience for the British Army. There are parallels with Sierra Leone, for example. But after more than a decade of fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, the executive officer of this European mission, Lieutenant Colonel Sebastian Miller, believes there could be more of this ahead for UK troops. It's really exciting. I think the the great thing about uh, this role is that it is, I think, going to become the norm in the future. And it offers an enormous range of opportunities to young uh, soldiers, women, men and officers to come to Africa to see a bit of the world they'll never probably see in their lifetime. Two Malian battle groups are now serving in the north of the country after going through this European training. Two more should have joined them before next summer. But this mission only has a mandate to run for a few more months. Commanders here say more battle groups need to be trained up to relieve those currently serving. They're waiting to see if politicians in Brussels will give them a mandate to carry on their work. James Hurst reporting from Mali. You don't often get good news about Iraq, but there is a positive story to tell involving British soldiers and culture. During the US-led invasion of 2003, the failure to stop intense looting meant that thousands of artefacts were stolen from archaeological sites and museums. But a scheme involving the British military has transformed Saddam's former palace into a museum displaying antiquities from Iraq's Assyrian, Babylonian and Arabic past. And it's nearly finished. A little earlier I spoke to Major Hugo Clark, who has been heavily involved in the project and since retiring from the army has been working on UK blue ships which aims to protect cultural heritage in conflict zones. I asked him about the difficulties in using the palace complex. I think that Saddam Hussein's moniker was all over the walls and obviously we had to address that issue with the um, with the Iraqis and they said, well, actually, Saddam Hussein is part of our history, is part of our heritage, and even if we didn't agree with what he did... They saw no problem with with having his hallmark all over the building itself. Just tell me a little bit more about the British military involvement in setting up this museum. I think it was very much due to the situation we were in, the security within Basra at the time. Really, no, no one from academia could get in, um, in or out without British military assistance. And what was the soldiers' reaction about getting involved in this kind of project? Interesting. We had a mixed reaction. There were those who immediately brought into it and understood that this was very much about Iraqi identity. Um, it was very much about us doing something positive for the Iraqi people in partnership with them. But there were those who were who didn't fully get it immediately, and it took some time to persuade them as to why it was so important for us to um, continue with this project. But over time, with those who we were dealing with, I think the majority understood exactly why we were doing it and also what the long-term benefits of such a project would be. Now that you've retired from the military, you are involved in UK Blue Shield. Just tell us a bit about what that's about and what it aims to achieve. Really what we're looking at is um, coordinating and strengthening efforts to protect cultural property at risk of destruction during armed conflicts or human-made disasters. We are looking at ways where we can develop a four-tier training approach for the British military. 
This involves looking at building on the DNA of the um, of the military for the importance of cultural property protection, the pre-theatre training, the in-theatre training and the post-conflict training. We're having talks with MOD at the moment um, and they are progressing relatively well and we hope we can set up some training in the near future with them. How much of a difference do you think it could make to the protection and preservation of artefacts in future wars? I think a huge difference because I think um, every footfall which we have on the ground leaves a lasting legacy for not only our country but for the indigenous population who we're working beside at the time and it's all about identity. If we ourselves can understand what the identity of those peoples who we are working with is, um, is about and understand more about their past and their history, we can therefore help them develop their future too. So it's, inc- so it's incredibly important that when we are on the ground that we understand something about where they've come from and also where they are going to and how we can assist with that. Should your ideas become some kind of international law? I know you're keen to have this a new part of the Geneva Convention enshrining this into law, aren't you? Just explain what that would be and how it might work. Well, what we're hoping for is the Hague 1954 um, convention and its two protocols of 1954 and 1999 ratified by the British government. This will enshrine the United Kingdom's responsibility for protection of cultural property in places where we are operating. It will also enshrine the um, the responsibility of the armed forces to um, to plan for the protection of cultural property and to protect cultural property during times of conflict. Is it actually possible to, if that were to become a law, to actually abide by it when you're in a conflict zone and you're fighting for your life? Yes, um, I believe it is. And I've been on both sides of the fence where I was commanding a company out in um, out in Helmand in 2010. Um, and I think with the relevant training, which I gave to my guys, um, it was perfectly reasonable to expect that we could protect cultural property. I've also been on the other side of the fence where I have been looking at delivering training to other units in the British Army. And the thing is, is that the soldiers, if they're taught it, get it. They are intelligent um, and also they are keen to understand more of the country which they're operating in. Major Hugo Clark, uh, Christopher, your thoughts? It's quite a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that a country in war uh, reacts more strongly to when its cultural heritage is damaged than it does even to the number of body bags that are coming back. It is a very, very odd thing. When Taliban uh, was blowing up the, the effigies in, in Afghanistan, when the libraries were burnt in, in, in Romania, this had a bigger effect on the population and in the international population Mm, than the actual thought. war itself. Mm. Any other business this week, Christopher? Yeah, let's start with China. Uh, uh, China has sort of said there's a no-fly zone over the Senakaku Islands, which is a dispute about these, these islands sea. with Japan. The Americans flew two B-52s over this week. Uh, the Chinese didn't do anything about it. They didn't sort of back down, but they didn't do anything about it. This is a big problem for the Americans, and it should be for us. Uh, Joe Biden, Jr., the vice president of the United States, is being sent to Beijing next week to talk about this, among other things. Is this a problem just between Japan and China that's got to be um, managed, or is it a much bigger thing about uh, uh, regional conquest? 
Christopher's new boss in Pakistan. Very, very, very important. Uh, the uh, Prime Minister Sharif has appointed Lieutenant General Rahil Sharif, who's not a, not a relative, by the way, as the new Chief of the Defence Staff, as we'd call him. He replaces Kayani. Kayani, very political. This guy is not political. Uh, Sharif, uh, last Why is time, it so important? Well, last time, actually, Sharif appointed somebody as Chief of the Defence Staff. It was a guy called Pervez Musharraf, who, avinged, who, who promptly sort of had a coup d'etat and, and kicked mm. him out. But it's very important because that stability, that non-stability, a uh, non-political stability of the army, very important in, in the future, for the future of Afghanistan. President Karzai. President Karzai is now saying, in very strong language, that the Americans have got to release all the people in Guantanamo before he will sign the deal uh, about staying there. He believes that the Americans are trying to pull a bluff here. He says the Americans don't actually want to leave Afghanistan ever. Ever, not just like next year, not just after year, ever, because that's going to be their centre for fighting Al-Qaeda. And if it's their centre, we're going to be involved in it. Interesting stuff. EU meeting in Lithuania. Today, yes. Uh, it's Germany in particular and France and the United Kingdom, and they're discussing the whole thing about Eastern Europe and the problems of migrants here uh, into in, in England, France and, and, and Germany. Instability instability in Europe is coming up again as a big, big subject. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests, to you, Christopher. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. SITREP is back at the same time next week, but for now from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This